0: Hey everybody, welcome to another fascinating episode with another fantastic guest. Today's guest is Tom Bilyeu. Tom's been impacting my life and my waistline for over eight years since I first used his Quest Nutrition Bars to slim down, to drop five pounds from my double chin to my stomach. Way back when I was giving a TEDx talk called Going to the Ends of the Earth to image, the beginning of time. You can find that on YouTube. And I was really kind of influenced by him and his epic mission to influence millions of people around the world from everything from crypto to nutrition and beyond. And he's really kind of a semi-scientist himself, although he denies that he has any scientific training. Of course, that's not the type of scientist that everyone should or can aspire to. Nevertheless, he is a hilarious and insightful, thoughtful person. We actually got into a lot of uh, fascinating things off the topic, in addition to things like crypto and NFTs and how we can uh, maybe reimagine the way that science is rewarded. But we also talked about children and life and marriage and things that I don't think he's ever talked about before. And if you listen to the very end, you'll see he paid me an incredible compliment that I don't feel I am worthy of. But stay tuned to the end for that. Now, I just got back from a whirlwind trip to New York City and Washington, D.C. You can see some of those exploits in upcoming videos on my channel. Dr. Brian Keating, please do subscribe. And uh, while it was great to be away, my first trip in two years to the East Coast, exactly two years, I definitely had a lot of misgivings about traveling and missing my family, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, I was really thrilled to have gone. When you come back, you're thrilled to have left and thrilled even more to come back and you get to be with your family and that's wonderful in this wonderful season the season of giving thanks and i want to give thanks to you for all the wonderful reviews you've been giving me i'm almost up to 310 reviews you can leave the 310th review after listening to this here's some inspiration from someone named brian smith 818, who said, excellent podcast. Brian is amazing. No, 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 he didn't say that. He said, Brian is among the most insightful people I know. When you start listening to the podcast, you'll immediately admire his obsessive curiosity. But as you get to know him, you'll see a deeper sign of what makes him special. He respects his guests, but probes them for deeper answers. And because he's so well-read, he brings a tapestry of polymathic knowledge to every episode do yourself a favor, subscribe, listen, and learn from Brian. Well, I really like that from a fellow Brian, uh, but it's also in most part due to my guests, and I'm honored to have them on. We have more Nobel Prize winners coming on. We have Nobel Prize losers like Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell. We have amazing guests from all across the scientific and thought leadership community. Stay tuned for some big announcements there. Today, we are going to really... Uh, have a wonderful kind of off-the-normal-topic conversation with Tom Billiam, And I do hope that you will leave a review, as Brian Smith did, as 309 other people have, uh, to talk about how you are impacted by this podcast, who you'd like to see on the podcast. And you can leave reviews, I think, in only two places, Apple Podcast or on Amazon Audible, uh, which you'll hear more about later in the show. So anyway, for now, I invite you to sit back, relax and come along on a journey into the impossible with a man who's made an impact on millions, maybe billions around the world. And that's Tom Billia. Enjoy.
1: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
0: I'm here today with Tom Villier, who's been an influence on me. Tom, you didn't know this, but I gave a TEDx talk back in 2014, along with our mutual friend James Altucher, and uh, he was the closing act. I was the opening act, and I had to drop, you know, five pounds, and I didn't know how to do it because I'm like addicted to eating you know, sweets and good tasting <laughs> and stuff. And uh, my trainer friends told me, you "Gotta get this Quest nutrition. It's like the real deal. It tastes just like a candy bar. It tastes just like a cookie." Mm. I want to thank you. You, because of you you allowed me to drop those five pounds. I dropped them from my double chin to my rear end. And I just... There you go. You. No, hey, seriously, it counts. You did. You really helped my life. And I made the TED talk. I cut weight. Those five pounds made a big difference. I want to thank you for that. That's cool,
1: man. My pleasure. Yeah, when we started... So, I come from a morbidly obese family. Yeah. So, you know, that was, at least for me, that was the whole idea was giving food that people could choose based on taste. And it happened to be good for them. Yeah. But that you didn't have to ask them to go out of their way. It was like, we really wanted it to taste like cookies, candy <laughs> pie, you know, that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. And the ultimate goal, the ultimate validation of it is my kids will eat that rather than, you know, some yeah. Oreo or something like that. Yeah, yeah. We used to
1: have a, a lot of people report that, which is tough.
0: Yeah. So I wanted to start with uh, actually going it further in that, in that vein. Um, you know, I heard interviews with you from years back just about that process or what your intent was. Not in the chemical, you know, laboratories mm. and the particle accelerators, uh, et cetera et cetera, but to make something healthy, to make something that had uh, mimicked certain properties that were uh, delicious, because that is the best way to incentivize good behavior. Mm. I viewed that as a very scientific quest, no pun intended. I want to talk about like the scientific method, how you approach things analytically and on what your rubric is. How do you make decisions like this? Like we're going to get into this, then we're going to pivot and we're going to become entertainment. Uh, then we're going to pivot and we're going to get into NFTs, founders keys, stuff like that we'll get into. How do you know when you can make a pivot? Is there a rubric? Is there a checklist? How do you how do you go through these? Yeah, so processes?
1: it's interesting. So I created this thing called the Physics of Progress. <laughs> You're the right person to have this conversation right. with, and. So because I, one, I'm trying to navigate my own life. So I never would have stepped in front of the camera if I wasn't running businesses. Because for me, that's like, I need to be checking that this stuff really works. I need to be using it on a daily basis. And then I'll look into a camera and say, here's what I'm doing and these are the results. Mm. And finding the, like, to try to explain to somebody how you get good at business. Because I'd often say things like, Hey, fill your heart with love, think of the community and all that. But oh, by the way, you also have to be business savvy because there's a bunch of people out there that have good intentions, but they can't grow a company. So I was like, what is business savvy? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you explain that? And so I start breaking this down. Okay, what do I do? And I'm like, all right, well, I start with my goal. I know what I'm trying to do. And then once I have my goal, I just identify. I'm here and my goal is there. And what stands between me and that is essentially entropy. Everything's moving towards chaos. Mm -hmm. So I have to inject all this energy into this closed system in order to create order. But you have to do it in like a really specific way. And that specific way is understanding... The obstacle that stands between you and where you want to go and then you basically create a test like you have a hypothesis and then a test mm-hmm. that you're gonna to run to see if it works you run it you learn and then you repeat and so I, I break this whole thing down and I'm <laughs> like it's the physics of progress and one of the guys on my team was like that's the scientific method yeah and I was like what <laughs> he's like look it up and so I look it up and I'm like oh my god this is literally the scientific method yes. recontextualized for business and what I love and you know people talk about this in science a lot when people rediscover the same thing from different angles, yes. you know you're onto something fundamental. Yes. And Truly everything has a physics of right Mm -hmm. like there's a point at which you're no longer at analogy You're at first principles, Mm -hmm. and you're just thinking from there And so business is no different you need to get down to what is the actual nature of the problem that you face? Mm -hmm. And when you get to the nature of the problem, then you can build up So I do this thing called business decision making where people that have you know Thriving businesses come and it's like give me your hardest problem and you'll see without me knowing your industry I can help you find the answer very quickly because you're just you're getting to first principles what's your goal where are you what what is the you know thing creating the problem Mm -hmm. and then how do we come up with our best guess hypothesis on the most efficient way to solve that problem and then if we've thought through that well we run that we will fail to some degree and then we try again Mm -hmm. and so it's What's really interesting about that process is people think that it's going to be complicated. They think what they need is my 20 years of business. What they actually need is first principles thinking. Mm. And the second, you get to first principles you can now solve these it's iterative of mm-hmm. course but you can now solve the problem
0: do you think it can work in reverse almost because of the curse of knowledge like i mentioned before we started filming you know that most of my friends that teach economics or teach at business schools or whatever they're not super successful financially not that that's the only metric for surprising sure. success obviously they're incredibly intellectual but you know most people that win the nobel prize in economics for example they're not you know billionaires right they're not uh, uh in practical terms and you would think they know that the, the base layer as you call it the zero first principles they know that better than anybody is there such a thing that's holding them back perhaps this curse of knowledge like they know it but they can't teach it because they're too far away from being at the beginner's mind perspective or that's really
1: interesting i so we could rabbit hole on (laughs) keeping a beginner's mind which is more important than people realize and and i think is the reason that generations end up thinking they're at war with each other they're not actually at war it's just that people tend to calcify into dogma Mm -hmm. and so it's open-minded versus like calcified and then that's why this generation then will calcify and the next generation will be open-minded but it's really if you can keep an open mind I don't think you find the conflict between the generations Um, but getting into why those people aren't successful specifically one is they're following their passion Mm -hmm. And so they're super into something. They're in this feedback loop that to me is very much like love. Mm -hmm. Love is only what I'll call real love when it's reciprocated. So you get into a feedback loop where I feel this thing. You feel that thing. It's a flywheel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh my God, you're making me feel better. I'm making you feel better. And ah, (laughs) like you get in this really cool loop. If you're developing a skill and you're getting good at it, and let's say that they're in intellectual circles or they're teaching or whatever. And so they get into that flywheel around the education portion. Mm -hmm. So what they're actually getting good at is teaching that thing versus doing that thing. Mm -hmm. Now they could flip it and decide, I'm gonna go get good at that thing instead of getting good at teaching it. But what you'll find is there are certain personality types or...
0: This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely.
1: Personality elements that are necessary to be successful in business and the one that takes everybody by surprise. You must be able to self-soothe And if you can't self-soothe, you'll never win as an entrepreneur because you're thrown into an environment, not only is the market full of chaos, but the amount that you can do as one person is so tiny that now you've got to get a whole large group of people to galvanize around an idea and a direction get all of them pointed in the same way and moving at speed. Mm-hmm. Then it's all going to break down because one day somebody's dog is going to have been hit by a car that day. Mm-hmm. Their kid is having a fit. COVID's going to happen. COVID happens. Mm-hmm. And so now all of a sudden you're like, wait, all I want to do is economics. Like I, when I read the books, I'm, I'm on fire. I feel the way that I want to feel. But when I'm dealing with HR, I don't feel the way that I want to feel. And so they, a thousand little moments like that, led them to just, they kept hitting a barrier and mm-hmm. finding, ooh, when I'm teaching it, when I'm reading about it, when I'm studying it, when I'm alone with the idea, That's I'm in the loop that I want to be in. And then when I try to organize other people and ah, like even dealing with the administration or maybe they don't even understand business or they have like some people have conflicted ideas around business. And so mm-hmm. it, it's just enough of those little nudges away from one side mm-hmm. and towards another that they get really good at one thing and it doesn't monetize well right
0: yeah and if you look at it you know I've, i know you've talked a lot about this in, in the past but you know kind of the inspiration as uh, cynic simon Sinek, so, you know finding your why or whatever um you know it's easy to optimize for that in economic terms with money or in influence and in science we have you know, citation counts that's our metric that's our lucre um what what is to you uh the 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 purpose of wealth because obviously you're you know you're, you're optimizing to, for financial success, but for impact as well. What is the, the purpose of this? I've had com- billionaires on, I've been fortunate to have billionaires on the podcast. Everyone gives a different answer, which is not the same as like a scientist. You get five, I want to understand how quarks work, I want to understand right. how the cosmos came to be, I want to understand you know, the, the uh, DNA replication. But what is the purpose of wealth, at least as, as you see it, Tom?
1: To me, it's all about what are you trying to build? So- I very fortunately learned truly in a visceral sense that money can't buy happiness very early and I'll make that more specific. Money doesn't influence your neurochemistry the way that you want it to. Mm-hmm. So what happens is, at least if you grew up like I grew up, sort of middle to lower middle class, you looked at wealthy people, especially in the 80s when it was like, that was celebrated <laughs> and amazing. And every John Hughes film was set mm-hmm. in a neighborhood in Chicago that I wanted to live in. <laughs> and you know, I looked at that and thought they were cool and amazing and it was everything that I ever wanted. And you know, so I had this sense of like, they're cool, I'm sort of lame, I want to be that, yeah. and so if I get rich, I will feel about myself the way that I feel about them now. Mm-hmm. And money can't do that, so money won't help you. So whatever insecurity you have, whatever thing about yourself that you don't like, all of that's gonna follow you. Mm-hmm. And so I can make you as rich as humanly possible, and it, it can't touch that part. And unfortunately, I mean maybe fortunately, in fact fortunately, The only thing that really matters in life is how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself and you don't need to be wealthy to feel good about who you are. And there's a whole formula that I have for that. Um, but when I think about then, why then do people keep chasing money? Because even I'm still chasing money. And if I know that that's not true and I've spent a whole lot of energy in my life, making sure that I do feel good about myself when I'm by myself, then why do things with revenue in mind? And the answer is because it lets you build and If it is true that money at its very nature, and this is an idea I'm obsessed with, don't think about things, think about the nature of things. (laughs) Once you start thinking about what the nature of money is, now you understand why people chase it. So it's not gonna help you feel better about yourself, but it is a way to basically capture your time and energy and carry it across time without devaluing it. And so now it's like, whoa, you're saying that right now I can spend my time in a way that's that can result in something that I can take with me across time and space. That's the only thing that you can do that carries forward like that. Every other use of your time it terminates then and there. Maybe Mm. you have a memory, like if it's an experience or something like that, and that's useful to Mm. be sure, but even those tend to degrade over time. Mm. Whereas if you can get good at investing in a way that the economics are captured and preserved, what's really being captured is the time and the energy. Mm. And so now you can essentially aggregate all that fruitful time and energy and now you can point it at something. And the reason that matters is when you take diffuse energy, right, I have however much time I have left in my life, but it's sort of evenly spread out, the Mm -hmm. energy that I can use. Mm -hmm. But if I can capture it in the form of money, now I've got a magnifying glass. And now I can build something. I can aim that magnifying glass and actually change the world. Yep. And so you think of a magnifying glass turns this diffuse, you know, right. radiation from the sun it into something entropy. And exactly. Yes. And it will light shit on fire. Mm-hmm. And so that's exactly what people can do with their time and energy by turning it into money first. Mm-hmm. Then you can concentrate it and you can create something absolutely spectacular. Mm-hmm. And so once people understand that's the nature of money. That's the nature of work. Now you don't expect it to be something that it's not, which is it's not going to make me feel better about myself, but it is going to allow me to build something. So if I can build something that makes me feel better about myself, now you get into this loop. So like my mission is to make sure that nobody gets to the age of 15 without encountering a growth mindset, makes me feel like I matter, gives me meaning and purpose, Mm -hmm. but I need money to do it. And so I've been very thoughtful in my life about doing things that allow me to capture that energy.
0: I want to ask you, and feel free, you know, we can always cut this out, but you made a conscious decision, if I remember correctly, not to have children. And I always say, you know, people are greedy because they want to teleport, they want to live forever, and they want to take their money with them, they want to take their houses with them. And I said, you can teleport, Tom, you can actually, there's a physicist telling you, you can teleport, you just can't go. (laughs) <laughs> In other words, you can teleport your values, your mindset, your philosophy, right. even your you know even your DNA if that matters to you. And I, I'm less of a fan of like how important DNA and blood matters. But with a child, and uh, you know I'm blessed to have children. I feel like children, by the way. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but I'm blessed to uh, to at least make this teleportation of me and my wife and our values into the future. Mm. And I'm curious. And again. It's not something you want to talk about. We can cut it out. No, but, I
1: love it. Let's fucking go. But, Ask know, me the hard questions. I'm about it.
0: I feel like you, you have so much impact on so many people around the world, but, you know, there is a difference. And I don't just mean biological kids. You know, some people can't have kids, you know, a lot of, uh, ideological kids you're making a lot of. What was that choice like? Why was it consciously uh, done in a way that, you know, I feel like if you have a stake in the future, as you do clearly. Um, oftentimes you want to incentivize that by by your own children or mm. by, by ideological children so what, why was that a, i don't like, mean to ask you know prior or anything but why was it a conscious decision not to have children as as i understand unless i'm oh no 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 yeah. you're right on the money okay, and so, i'm so not sensitive uh, okay, about So you
1: can ask it as hard as you want <laughs>
0: okay, fine.
1: so the way that i see it is this i really want kids like i really want kids i could write you a poem about the the transformational nature of that um, that would convince you that i had kids because i really understand what that's about partly because i big brothered for a kid for eight and a half years and i see how they become like this thing that you care about and you love and you want to protect and so like i get it Um, the only thing i want more than i want to have kids is to not have kids and so it was this like, ah, oh man, of do I, because I, I will regret not having children when I'm old. Like, right. I'm so aware of that. And so my thing is go into every decision with your eyes wide open. Yeah. Understand everything is a trade-off. Mm-hmm. So um, Thomas Sowell, I think, is yeah. a brilliant economist. And mm-hmm. he says, there's no utopia, people. There's no free <laughs> la- There is just trade-offs. <laughs> That's right. And so to have children would be this beautiful trade-off. And I would get something absolutely extraordinary in terms of the upside. Mm-hmm. But the life that I've worked so hard to construct for myself is so joyful and full of fulfillment that I was like, I'm trading a known for an unknown and it may be better and I may do it and go, oh my God, of course, Like, how could I have ever thought that I didn't wanna do this? And I got a piece of advice and it really, and I remember when he said it to me, I said, this is the best advice I'm ever gonna get on having kids. Entrepreneur successful guy and I was really debating it. I was like look. I love building so much Mm -hmm. I don't want anything to pull me away from that and I'm like really concerned Yeah, Mm -hmm. so what do I do have kids not have kids he goes Tom Have kids don't have kids. It doesn't matter, but whatever you do do it all the way Mm -hmm. And I was like whoa that is really good advice Mm -hmm. And so I just decided that I wanted to I never wanted to have something that made me feel guilty that I was at work and I thought I already know like I have two little dogs and if I work too much, I start feeling bad because of the dogs and I just know myself well enough. I feel a tremendous sense of obligation to help and to do better. And if I have kids, I wouldn't be able to build the business the way that I want to. And that's a trade off and I will miss out on a huge part of the human experience i making that choice. Mm-hmm. But I also capture something that people with kids won't be able to do, which is to be unconflicted about that thing that you're doing and that there is nothing because I built, I'm building the company with my wife. Yeah. So it's like the more I invest in my marriage, the more I can invest in the company. And I don't have anything that's, you know, sort of calling me or wanting me home. And to make matters worse, I'm very close with my extended family. Yeah. So all of that sense of Connection and camaraderie and love and joy that comes from the familial environment, mm-hmm. I get from them. But as they die off, I really am going to say, fuck, I gave up a lot to do all of those things. Yeah. And in that, and I've tried to run the thought experiment of whether it will be cold comfort to me that I have built these things and all of that. Um, and I come to one inescapable truth about the human condition. The only thing that matters is your frame of reference. And so if in that moment I say, you sacrificed like an idiot, you gave up, you could have children at your bedside right now taking care of you, loving you, and you sold that out for what? For a company? Mm -hmm. To to help strangers halfway around the world? For money? I'm disgusted. What were you thinking? Mm -hmm. And if that's my frame of reference, it will be devastating emotionally and I, I will be ruined. But what I know is that I don't need to choose that frame of reference and the other frame of reference is to say, you built something that mattered and it impacted people's lives and you optimized for joy while you were doing it. That the pursuit of that thing gave you so much that there were days where you were giddy looking around like, "I, this fight that I'm doing to build this company, win or lose, has been the most fun I've ever had in my life. Mm and you really tried to maximize your potential and to be fulfilled, to matter, to do things that help. And that was awesome. Mm -hmm. And so if now you wish that you had had kids, mourn that, do whatever you need. But don't lose sight of what you were really doing and what the frame of reference was that got you here. And I find any decision in your life, you can just flip your frame of reference, it's the same truth, Mm -hmm. but you look at it from one angle and it feels terrible. You look at it from another angle and suddenly you're like, wow, that actually feels amazing. Um, So I will be, I am very thoughtful about how I frame the things in my life, especially the things I can't change.
0: It wasn't just, you know, oh, we're frivolous and we won't be able to take as many trips to Europe. That's certainly true, although not too many people are, you know, taking world trips right Right. now, right? Um, So what do you think is the most misunderstood thing about Either you or business, and in other words, there are concepts that are misunderstood by the general public. Entropy, we talked about that. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more. I mean, one of my favorite things to think about is if I ask you, Tom, like, how can I make your life twice as good right now? Like if I give you, you know, twice as much money, does it make your life twice as good? Not really. I mean, you can only water ski behind one yacht at a time, right? Not (laughs) how I spend my
1: money, but yes, because I go immediately to how much faster could I build and would that really help. but yeah. So but then if I
0: ask you, you know, how can I make your life half as good? There are an infinite number of ways, right? That Especially if you have very your, easy. your dog, yeah, whatever. Yeah, With kids, it's even more so. Um, so people kind of neglect that optionality, that there is this network effect, there is this entropic, uh, you know, dependency, and there's more availability of states that your life could be worse than it could be better. That's really interesting. And, and for that reason, which is the definition of entropy, it's disorder to order, and then it's much harder to get ordered. And focusing the light, like you said before, it's an organized Energy. The sun puts out a lot of energy, but it's not as well organized until we use it on Earth. So I want to ask you: What is the most misunderstood part about you, your life, the businesses that you make? What seems easy to people is really hard. What's really hard that seems easy? How, how do you um, how do you like parcel out? Because you only have. Uh, You know, this limited resource of time, although I want to get into other aspects that are limited in my opinion. But how how do you allocate resources to direct them entropically to focus into the sunlight beam of, you know, laser intensity that you do so exquisitely well?
1: Well, so in terms of what do people misunderstand, I don't know. I don't spend a lot of time. um, I just don't get that feedback. It's not like I'm doing some heroic thing to avoid it or anything. I just, I haven't got a lot of feedback. But in terms of what people misunderstand about business, it's really emotional regulation. And Mm -hmm. so I've seen a lot of people that were far smarter than I, um, they either don't have the stamina or they they can't deal with the emotional pain of failure. And because to learn you must fail, mm-hmm. if you can't reorient yourself to not worrying about that, um, you're never going to make it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the part of, in business I'm always trying to get people or about me that I'm trying to get people to understand. Mm-hmm. I am not smarter than the average person. I'm not a fast thinker. I'm, I am a obsessive thinker, so I end up thinking deeply about things, but I'm not a fast thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, but despite that, I've been able to put together a useful set of ideas and skills that allow me to move forward because I can emotionally regulate myself, deal with failures, and then let the knowledge from the failures stack. That's Mm -hmm. like my real superpower. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, how do I allocate the resources? That, everything is Mm goal-driven. Like, what is your goal? This is a thing that the number of people that come up to me, usually as an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. and they're like, all right, Tom, I'm really struggling, like, what's the key? And I'm like, don't say a word. I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to ask you what your goal is. And you're going to tell me you know exactly what it is. Then you're going to say it out loud. And it's going to be really vague. And they're like, no, I got it. Ah, <laughs> ha. And so then I ask, cool, what's your goal? I want to win a gold medal. And I'm like, amazing. In what? The Olympics? Right. Yes, the Olympics. Fantastic. Summer or winter? Summer. Great. Swimming or tennis? Swimming? Fantastic. Backstroke, Freestyle medley? Like, what are we doing? <laughs> people think they're clear because they have that, like, initial sort of ballpark thing yeah. that they want to do. Passion, right? Yeah. And the, the answer people actually give when I say, okay, what's your goal? I want to help people. Right. It's not a business. I want to be right? famous. Right. It's mm-hmm. so vague. <laughs> so, like, you have to get laser targeted. What, by when, and how much. Yeah. Like, when you get that focused on what it is that you're trying to like do. Metrics. Yeah. Then we can back into... The next 15 minutes because there you know where you want to be, you know where you are, and so if you can get good at identifying that gap, the entropic principle, the thing that 's the problem, then we can start figuring out what our proposed solution is. Once we think we know our proposed solution to the problem that stands between us and our goal, now I know what to do in the next 15 minutes. I know whether I need a racket or a swimming pool. Mm -hmm. And until you get that kind of clarity on what it is you need to become the best in the world at in order to achieve your goal, you can't move forward. And so allocating my energies is always around first principles thinking around that scientific loop that we talked about, knowing where I'm trying to get to. Mm -hmm.
0: And I want to pivot a little bit uh, because I see you pivoting so much in life, and it's so commendable. Because I think you know one of the lessons I've gotten from interviewing ten Nobel Prize winners to date is that when they get bored of something, when they're not having fun. That's the key moment. That's the question. You know, they say about marriages. If you, if a psychologist is interviewing some, you know, a couple and they're having a problem, if one of them like rolls their eyes or something, that right. person they're going to get divorced. Like it's just a ninety-nine percent correlation. When you're not having fun as a scientist, which you normally don't think of, it, you think about, it, you know, very bookish and studious, and but it's actually really fun and it's very creative which people don't often appreciate as well. Um, what is your rubric again your metrics focus guy? So what do you, what do you apprise as metric? Obviously business has a metric It's built in. But I see your you know kind of killer, you know, app or your secret power, superpower is actually your 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 podcast, your interviews, the conversations that you have, the deep dives that you take, both you and you used to do it live and now you're doing it here. Um, what how do you know when you're doing well as an interviewer? Like what what like, what is going on in your mind? What app? Because I know you've got an app running in your back. Your like, I'm doing good. I'm doing bad. Like, I'm sitting here. You're telling me about the, you know, optionality that you decided with not having kids. Or, and I'm like, that's kind of giving me chills. Like, that's really cool. At least he thought about it. He's not some selfish, you know, self-absorbed guy. But how do you know when you're interviewing somebody? Mm. Like give us like that app that's running in your mind. Because you're obviously
1: very- I have two different interview styles. So mm-hmm. it partly depends on which interview I'm running. If I'm doing the, you just wrote a book and I'm trying to help you give the best interview you're ever gonna give to distill the book, mm-hmm. then it's like I map it out beforehand and I'm like how close are we getting to stringing together the best answers they've ever given to these questions into one like nice, concise package.
0: Not like the first time they ever told the secret, but the best time. The best Yeah, th- okay, so I, see, I, see.
1: I find their loop, mm-hmm. and then I help distill their loop down, and then hopefully have tangents that I wanna go into that really clarify and are fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's interview style number one. Interview style number two is that They're on a topic that I'm so fascinated by. I know the interview's going well when I completely forget Mm -hmm. that I'm interviewing them, and I'm just locked in. Mm -hmm. And this was, so about two years ago now, I pulled my team aside and I said, look, I'm not having fun anymore, Mm -hmm. and I'm doing the same interview over and over and over, and it's not interesting to me, and so we're going to need to broaden the type of interview that I can do. And what was happening was I was interviewing mindset people Mm -hmm. and it was getting to the point where I could give a better mindset interview than (laughs) answer than they could. And so I was like, this isn't fun anymore. And to expand it, it was, there needed to be some niche. Like what's gonna be that thing? And so the idea was, okay, well I'm building a mindset so I can deploy it against something. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm gonna start bringing people on that I'm just fascinated by that are, you know, whether it's a neuroscientist or an astrophysicist, you know, people that, and I'm like, look, the audience, we didn't build that audience. right? So it's gonna be a rough, we're gonna go through the desert for a while. Mm-hmm. And we will come out the other side because eventually we will gather a different crowd and but it was it was two years of like ooh our growth is really slowed down, mm-hmm. but now as it clicks over and you know we built this other community, it's like we're demolishing our all time records and <laughs> um, just going crazy. But you really, I mean, to bring it back to your initial question, like you have to know what you're trying to deliver to the audience mm-hmm. to know the metric by which to judge it. Mm-hmm.
0: And do you find that like things that are seemed ancillary or maybe un- unrelated? You know, I call it for you, your forklift moment, things that you would have never thought would come into play in a business and then, okay, I know how to drive a forklift and that's going to save my ass one day. But are there things serendipitously that you kind of, quote unquote, count on and that contributes to your success? Or is it more methodical? Because I, I see this paradox in you and it's meth- methodic, me, uh, method, <laughs> methodical and also very, very kind of, not carefree, but just open to serendipity.
1: Yes, and now I'm going to say, it's not a quote, but an idea that you'll actually be able to tell me if this is real. Because I've quoted this so many times, and every time (laughs) I'm like, I'm pretty sure I remember this right. Uh, That most Nobel Prizes are awarded where two areas overlap. So it's like
0: chemistry and physics, or whatever. And so... Like Rosalind Franklin discovered DNA. She was a physicist. They won it for medicine. Totally. correct. Correct. Correct, yeah. All right. I'm very happy to hear that that's real. Yeah. <laughs> now,
1: that, I think, is the reason I've been successful the way that I have. So the synergy. What, yeah, because what ends up happening, my perfect example is, so almost every 10 years, I've ended up disrupting myself and moving into something completely different. Mm-hmm. So I start in filmmaking. Then I go to technology, software, security software, of all mm-hmm. things. Then I go into nutrition. No software, oh, nothing God. to do with filmmaking, nothing. And now into media, So at Quest, what helped was, well, I was a filmmaker before. And so I built out a whole studio inside of a protein bar company. And social media ends up becoming our thing. It wasn't even called social media back then. So it was like nobody was doing it. But because I was a filmmaker by trade, Mm -hmm. it made sense to me. And so we were creating content as a company before other companies were doing it. Ah. Ends up being one of the things that helps us blow up. Now you move into media, start a comic book division at Impact Theory, go into it. And as soon as I see the distribution model, I'm like, wait, I just came from nutrition where we're distributing to, you know, 90,000 points of distribution. I've got down to the shelf, like what's moving, how many units I have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like you're getting real time data. And because of that, I can do marketing in specific regions and not others. And I know what flavors work where. Mm -hmm. And so it's like with that data, I can steer the company. Yes. But in comics, it's like from the nineties, I'm not kidding. One distributor, it was a joke. And so I'm like, Guys, you can't do this. And so we got on a call with them, and I'm like, hey we need this data, this data, this data. And they're like, we're not going to supply that. So I'm like, well, then we're not going to print comics anymore. Like it was so self-evident. I'm like looking around at all the other comic distributors. I'm like, guys, you can't put up with this. Like this is insane. And so we immediately pivoted hard to, um, going pure digital. Hmm. And so then literally we hard pivot, pure digital COVID hits. Now the comic world is like imploding because none of them are digital. Mm -hmm. We're popping off because we've gone digital and it's like I never would have moved that quickly if I didn't have the experience from being in the um nutrition industry. Mm-hmm. So it's like you end up going, Whoa, like this thing that I never would have realized, the driving the yeah. forklift for people that yeah. don't know that story, you know, my dad forcing me to work in a paint factory as a kid, learning how to I had to get certified to drive forklift and angry at my dad, like thinking this is the dumbest thing ever. Yeah. I'm like, why are you making me do this? And, but in the bill, you household every summer you had to have a job. And so, yeah, I ended up paint factories, paint warehouses. Cause my dad worked for a paint company and then flash forward 15, 17, maybe even 20 years later. I don't remember how long. And the equipment shows up at quest and we look around and we're like, how are we getting it off the semi? Like what, what have we done? We've just taken delivery of like hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment, and a big semi truck backs up and there's no way to get it off the truck and into the warehouse. And my partner's like looking around and, oh my God, if only we knew how to drive forklift. And I'm like, guys, mm-hmm. I actually do know how to drive a forklift. <laughs> and so went, got the forklift from a neighbor in the, you know, the complex, unloaded everything and I literally looked into a camera and was like, dad, Wax on, wax off, man. It's crazy. <laughs> That's awesome. And so, yeah, skill acquisition is the name of the game. You mm-hmm. never know when you're going to need something. Look, be intentional about the skills that you acquire, but don't be afraid to reinvent because it, it does end up coming back in some yeah.
0: way. And going back to your Olympics analogy, you know, I feel like the most successful people are like the biathletes. Like, they're not the best skiers, they're not the best shooters but they're best guys who can ski and shoot at the same time and maximize that vector, that projection into, into that uh, space. Um, I want to pivot in the last few minutes uh, to my standard three questions. I ask all my guests, but before we do, I want to talk about NFTs because you've obviously gotten really interested in it. First of all, I remember you saying like your goal has become Disney 2.0, 3.0, whatever. Um, now you're obviously incredibly invested into the invested, you know, in terms of your intellectual capital uh, into NFTs and 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 so forth. Those on the surface, I mean, there's comics and so forth, but those on the surface don't appear to be completely co-aligned. If I'm your career coach, like, can you explain to me how do those dovetail together, or do yeah. they have to, not have to?
1: No, they do, okay. dude. Okay, so I'm obsessed. I hope we got a little yeah, bit of time yeah, of here, course, so yeah, as much as you have. Uh, <laughs> I have a whole strategy. So when we started Impact Theory, I said to the team, our job is to stay in business long enough to find our moment of disruption. And I didn't know what it was going to be. I could not have predicted that it would end up being NFTs. But as an entrepreneur, you have to look for cultural energy. And there's been something really weird happening in the culture that I round to. And I don't know how you feel about swearing on the show. I've done it a couple times that's already. Okay. Yeah, but you fun. can beep it out. That's mm-hmm. what I call. There's fuck you, fuck the man energy mm-hmm. building up. Mm-hmm. And, um, you yeah, know. Authoritarian. Yeah. like yeah. So I'm watching this. And I'm like, oh, there's something going on. Like, there's all this friction between the generations. Like, what is this? And. I'm beginning to realize that you, when you look at tectonic plates, there's all this pressure building up. Oh, my God, you actually know the person. So Eric <laughs> Weinstein says yes. somewhere, I don't remember where I heard it. I don't think he said it to me. But he said um, the generations, the part of the, all this friction is that the old generation isn't passing the baton to the new generation. That's right. and I remember when he said it, he is one of the smartest people on the planet. I sit at his feet constantly. <laughs> but it's the one thing he's ever said where I thought, no just? one ever hands off the baton yeah it's just that historically physicality was such a part of our day-to-day life that the old generation couldn't hold on to power they were just outperformed by young people mm-hmm. but now everything is becoming information and therefore experience is more useful than youth vigor and right. physical strength I wisdom is more
0: important than knowledge
1: exactly yeah. well said so they're able to cling to power in a way that Previous generations couldn't. And so you're getting all this friction building up between the generations. Mm -hmm. And the housing bubble happens, bursts. Satoshi writes a white paper, creates Fuck You Man Money. Mm -hmm. And so no one's ever gonna like lord this over us again. We understand this decentralized movement and we're gonna do this whole thing. And so here I am going. Okay, I've got this huge incumbent in Disney mm-hmm. that has done an extraordinary job. I am in nothing but awe of my competition. Yeah, like yeah. what they've done is absolutely breathtaking. No, and I'm looking at it going, okay, they've got a 90 year head start. They've got billions of dollars in IP mm-hmm. and billions of dollars in revenue. How am I ever gonna and brand yeah, and awareness? And- exactly. How am I ever gonna like really have my moment? Mm-hmm. Then, I start looking at the blockchain, I see what's happening there. Somebody introduces me to the idea of digital scarcity like six years ago mm-hmm. and I remember seeing it going, that's going to change my business forever, but then probably forgot about it because the tech wasn't there yet. Mm-hmm. And um, As it you know, goes, people start creating all this incredible infrastructure and then about eight months as of when we're recording this ago, somebody says the letters NFT in a string to me for the first time. And I, within 72 hours, have allocated millions of dollars in capital Mm -hmm. because I realized one thing that NFTs does that gives me what I need in order to actually take on Disney. And that is going back to that. In fact, the magnifying analogy Mm -hmm. I got from thinking about why NFTs are changing the world because it isn't that they're collectibles. That's cool. And that's like a part of what makes it work. Mm -hmm. It's not even the technology, which the technology is so important. And to think from first principles, you have to understand it. But that technology allows for companies now to really harness in an efficient way the energy of a community which has not yet been possible so what it's opened is this ability all that fuck you to the man energy Mm -hmm. that's pent up you're able to take a distributed mentality and say hey What I'm going to do, I'm going to create products, but I'm going to let you as the community capture the long tail value of that. Now, the second that became technologically possible for the audience to capture 90% of the long tail value of the products that they help promote, you just changed everything. Why? Because the... Current incumbent companies will not be able to make the mental switch. This is exactly how incumbents get disrupted. Every time they calcify into dogma Mm -hmm. and they end up getting disrupted by somebody who just has come up in a new world. It's so fun having a scientist so I can use all these quotes. Max Planck, right? Science does not advance one insight at a time, it advances one funeral at a time. Mm -hmm. Why? Because people cannot let go of these ideas that worked. They worked. You built a career yeah. on them. Kodak did
0: great, right?
1: But you can't do it when you see the mm-hmm. digital camera, even though you invented it. Right. So That's it right. becomes this whole quagmire. So now you get a company like me. All I'm looking for is a moment of disruption. And you're telling me all I have to do is give up a ton of revenue? No problem. Mm-hmm. Because what I actually need is the magnifying glass. I don't actually need that much revenue. It's mm-hmm. very easy to give that away in the short term because it comes back in the long term so imagine i'm not trying to build the next netflix right now that's a distribution platform oh god the thought of trying to build that no no way like that's unimaginable amounts of capital to try and build not going to do that but i can build something on the back of nfts that allows me to just get my community absolutely fever-pitched because they know, so we have a product coming up called Merry Mods. It's a story, we wanna turn it into a franchise, but we're making an NFT of it first, mm-hmm. which they can then buy, and then if I actually pull off turning that into uh, you know, a franchise, that collectible ends up having real value. And so you create an incentive in the audience because they're going to, on the secondary market, we'll take a very small amount, they'll mm-hmm. capture, the absolute lion's share mm-hmm. of that. And now, if I go to Netflix Netflix, and say, hey, guys, all you holders of the Mary Mods project, uh, we're going to be pitching Netflix. I want you to stand in the parking lot with a sign that says, I'll watch Mary Mods, right? right. And if I can get, and that's activate. a bit tongue-in-cheek, mm-hmm. but if I can get 5,000 people to yeah. activate, to show up, yep. to call in, to whatever, mm-hmm. then it's a very different negotiation. And so I learned an immutable truth at quest, which is whoever's closest to the audience controls the negotiation. Mm. And if you've added value to the audience's life and then ask them to do something that's sort of low effort for them, but huge impact for you, they'll do it. It's Mm -hmm. absolutely incredible. And the blockchain is what unlocks my ability to capture that energy Mm. by giving them products that they capture the value of. And it's just like, I say this to as many entrepreneurs as I can, as fast as I can, about how they've got to switch the way they think. You need an NFT strategy. This is about activating your community and letting them participate in the growth of the companies and products that they help support it's never existed before
0: so i want to you know start to wrap up with that concept but now apply to science my domain so it used to be that you know professors would get you know decent salary not made i'm a public you know employee of the state of california but i have freedom i had academic freedom uh, I had none of the kind of I had all the upside in the past, but none of the administrative bureaucratic uh, you know all the different uh, hurdles and, and sort of legal compliance that I have to go through every single day that I have almost no time to teach. by the way, they never taught me how to teach, I had to learn that myself on my own and then uh, uh, but also there I'm expected to do research and I'm not making as much money as I could and I see my students that go to Google and Apple yeah. and, and come here or something like that they're making twice the salary of a public employee so I'm asking you know, on behalf of other scientists. Is there a strategy, or you know, where you could see it from the creator side? You talked about from the from the uh, broader platform side of how they could be participant, beneficiary, owners of this intellectual property. But somebody has to create. Now, in science, you know, you'd like to think, oh, science belongs to the public, Um, and it does if the public pays your your salary, pays for my research grants, pays for my graduate students. Uh, But what if they don't? I I guess I worry about a slightly dystopian phenomenon, and I'm (laughs) hoping that you'll disabuse me of that notion, which is that if we You know, Andrew Huberman, who was on your podcast recently, saying, Mm. this is great. You know, we're going to look for, you know, first microscope picture of this, you know, this gene. I actually found that very scary because privatizing science is antithetical to what I think of as Mm. science. I actually find that very frightening. Um, And so I'm worried that could we become a victim of the success and the scalability that you evangelize so successfully? if NFTs go into science. In other words, I get the case for business, for profit, whatever. Science, I would like to think, is for the public. But uh, along those lines, we also, you know, don't do a great job selling it to the public. I mean, a scientist they say is outgoing if he looks at your shoes when he talks to you, right? <laughs> uh, so we're not. We have a great, <laughs> we have a great script, and we're terrible uh, actors. That's uh, amazing. Are you worried about, and you know, kind of like ice nine phenomena, where it's just going to go across uh, the world? And then what now, a great reference. Yeah. So so.
1: I am not, so I will disabuse you of that. You're going to see a wonderful future. Look, let's always remember Thomas Sowell is correct. Everything is a trade-off. Right. But uh, here's how it will actually play out. So the big concern, the sort of irony of ironies, the big criticism of NFTs is why would I ever pay money for something that's available to everybody? So they're going to remain available to everybody for a couple reasons. One, it's the same reason when somebody buys art, the vast majority of people want to put it somewhere people can see it. And the adoption of art in nfts is a hundred times a thousand times more than art that's going to hang in your house why because you can flex it Mm -hmm. now there is a there's this idea of the god neuron right that some people just have a neuron in their brain that makes them (laughs) much more responsive to religious experience Mm -hmm. and so they have this sense of awe and wonder and so they can't fathom how somebody could not believe in god Mm -hmm. i think there's also what i'll call an ownership neuron where there are just some people They just want to own it. Even if it's a star in the sky Mm -hmm. and everyone gets to look at it, to them it just matters. It means something to own. Mm -hmm. Now, I happen to have that neuron, Mm -hmm. so I'm like, yo, that's mine, (laughs) I own it, that's in my wallet. Now, there's a whole side to NFTs where there's... The way you have to think of NFTs, it's NFTs with matrix code hiding inside of it. Right. It's not can't like see. putting
0: it in a free port right. in the Bahama that you never you, see. You it. All right. can't see right. the code, right. but it's there. Yeah.
1: And so I can imbue it with utility. Yeah. So it isn't just that, oh, you are the, like, I saw this meme that was like, oh, I get NFTs now. If I own it, I'm the only one that's allowed to pretend that I actually own it. <laughs> and when you don't understand metadata, that's what it seems like. But for instance, we did a project called the Impact Theory Founder's Key. Yes. If you have one of the keys, anybody could go screen grab it, mm-hmm. and now they have your exact pixel perfect copy of your key. But if you show up to one of my live events and try mm-hmm. to get in, I'm going to scan it, and I'm going to see that you don't have metadata okay. and that it's not actually yours. Mm-hmm. So
0: It's imbued with a intelligent yeah. feature that that right, is not, not repeatable, not replaceable, not, not breakable. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. So mm-hmm. what I think is going to happen in science, it will be something like this is the first photo of you know whatever yeah. gene whatever um, breakthrough star of a mm-hmm. nebula or whatever mm-hmm. and the people that want to own it are now going to be able to own it and then when it's a real moment like that becomes culturally significant think mm-hmm. about uh nba top shot so nba top shots and hundreds of millions of dollars in oh, revenue yeah. selling moments that just the night before were free right Anybody can watch. Mm-hmm. Tape it. Anybody yeah. can watch now. Mm-hmm. Go on YouTube and see it. Yeah. But people still want to own it. Right. And so now when science finally has this moment where somebody like you or Huberman or whoever mm-hmm. can say, hey, public, here is this new discovery for everybody to see. Look at it. Take it. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we've got the NFT. Right. Now, they're more incentivized than ever to make sure that the whole world knows about that. Why? Because it makes the NFT more valuable. So now the more famous they can make the information, the more famous they can say, this moment really matters. It leads to this. And look, people go take the information. And people are like, oh my God, this leads to this breakthrough, that breakthrough. Ah, it's all this stuff is happening because this person shared it with the world. That NFT skyrockets in value in a community that cares about science and cares about NFTs. When I say that... Over the next, whatever, 20 years, billions of dollars will be generated. I mean, billions of dollars, $3.8 billion were generated in NFTs in August of 2021 alone. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'll say over the next 20, 25 years, there will be billions of dollars in educational, scientific things that people are going to create in NFTs Mm -hmm. that the market will say this was a relevant enough moment and a scarce enough supply that this matters Mm -hmm. and then most of that value will be transacted on the secondary market so the community gets to capture that value. We talked about how important Mm -hmm. that is. But it you can get... to the benefit of the... Cre- right. Mm-hmm. For several reasons. One, they'll get a royalty. If they're mm-hmm. smart, they don't have to. But yeah. that will certainly help fund more science and all mm-hmm. of that. Uh, but also, they become known as the person that did that. The NFT matters. They become sort of celebrities within that culture, which gets them more attention. And trust me, attention opens doors and, and, and it just becomes this exception. incredible
0: loop. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the last thing I'll say about that, I also think there's a parallel kind of metaverse with blockchain in general, that you could have things which are scarce in science, like proof Proof of discovery, proof, you know, I discovered that the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate. Well, that's pretty darn cool, but I'm not ready. I have to validate it, verify it. But if somebody else, if I submit it to peer review, you know, which is like mm. the ultimate centralized, you know, a finance of science, then someone could steal that, block my paper, I never get it published, they discover, they claim discovery of it, right? But if you have proof of actual accomplishment, proof of discovery, whatever you want to call it, Dude, that could revolutionize. That's what science huge. Done, yeah. That's huge. Once you timestamp it on the blockchain, yep. that- that's it. That's open and unverifiable. Um, the next kind of stage in this in this conversation, um, I want to just maybe pivot to one last thing or revolving, you know, crypto and, and so forth. And that is, you know, revolves around the three things that are here. One is a that's a piece of gold. This is a bookmark from my first book I'm going to leave with you. So this is gold. This oh. is a meteorite. This is 4.2 Whoa. billion years old. This is your gift uh, for, Havoc, for coming on huh. the Into the Impossible so podcast. Cool. So that's 4 billion years old. Now talk about proof of work, okay? Yeah. So for that to occur, you had to have a supernova explode in the local arm of our galaxy imbuing the local arm that we would later habit with dense metals to make a core of the earth to crystallize light metals and so forth to the gravitational field not be too heavy like Jupiter and just have gas and suck up ice and we can live there so for us to be here that thing had to be there and Mm. it is a result of an explosion gold comes from the collision of two neutron stars talk about you know proof of work that occurred you know billions of years Mm. ago as well and then eventually migrated its way to where our earth would form in the solar system and is in the crust at some level how do you and then I have this book uh, and I have a quest Cookie over here um, and and these are sort of uh, you know fungible in some sense or another but um you know, to the extent of convincing the ordinary average person, you know, uh, of, of the value of something that, as you say, is replicatable, is uh, on the content side. When they see this, there's only one of those. Mm-hmm. And it took a neutron star explode, you know, to, for that to create it. How do you cause that that phase change, you know, to use a physics term, in, in just ordinary people to say, like, this meta object, you know, which weighs nothing, can be transported. We, you and I both had a Michael Saylor on, you know, he loves to wax rhapsodically about, you know, Bitcoin travels at the speed of, you know, try doing that with gold or whatever. But you know, how do you convince people of that? Uh, you know, when it's not in our nature as human beings, we like scarcity. Our mind thrives on finite games of collecting things like Nobel prizes and cookies and and gold. H- how do you how do you convince the average person to go against? Maybe that is that genetic. I guess is what I'm getting to. Is there something visceral in the human being that maybe distrust the ephemeral, the digital, the meta? Um, or do you think that's you know just a matter of time? And maybe I'm a little ossified. Yeah, I think it, it is literally only change. Mm. So. People have a hard time
1: changing. So if you have come to value the physical, if you have the amazing frame of reference that you have for explaining this is two um, neutron stars colliding and that's the only way that we get gold. For you, that's so cool (laughs) that it's like, okay, it's neat that you can do like mathematically sound money with computers, (laughs) but that doesn't have the romance Mm -hmm. of the colliding stars. People love the story, right. But not... Everybody has the understanding. When you say neutron stars, like, yo, you know what that means, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Most people are like, I don't know what that is. That's like, eh, it's esoteric, right? <laughs> yes. Whereas what they really respond to is just what they grew up with. So if you grew up and your friends are like, oh, you know, did your parents give you any ETH today? Are you using mm-hmm. your wallet to, you know, pick up a new skin on Fortnite? Mm-hmm. It just is. It's, you know, David Foster Wallace, this is water. For them, it will be self-evident that that's just a superior it it is the way that money is handled Mm -hmm. right so the transitional generation is the only generation that like we really have to think about and so yeah and so where it starts is can they generate enough um, of a use case so that you want it and so Bitcoin and Ethereum as of the time of this recording specifically have done a very good job because you've got people like me and trust me, this is not financial advice, do your own research, but like when I look at my portfolio and I'm like, guys, I'm making so much money, this is insane and all I did was listen to somebody who said, Tom, take an amount of money that you're willing to lose and put it in this and just see what happens. Mm -hmm. I finally did it once I actually understood the technology And you just see that number going up. Now, it's volatile. So I've also seen it go down. But my thesis is to hold. Mm -hmm. And not to look every day. You talk to Raul Paul about that. right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen a lot more up than I've seen down. And, I mean, now it gets into a very complicated question. to why it has so much value with inflation and all of that. Um, But the transitional generation, there will be a fight. And some people will say, nah, this isn't really valuable and this is dumb and look at all these people and you already see that going on right now. Mm-hmm. But the use case of it is, gets pretty profound pretty fast and so people that give it a try, I think the overwhelming number of them, nothing will ever be 100%, but the overwhelming number of people that get in will be rewarded either in just it's frictionless money. Yeah. It's so easy. Right. Um, like literally today I had a vendor that I owed 50 ETH to. It's a lot of money. Mm. Now, normally I'd have to like fucking call and deal with all the stuff <laughs> to get the money and like get it out and get all their numbers and I'm panicking. Is this right? And I was literally like, cool, just send me your, um, your address mm-hmm. and I'll send it to you right now. Nice. And so gives me the address, this, the address. Right. Yes, that's the address. Click fees, and you know, whatever, <laughs> 90 seconds later, he's got the <laughs> payment. Wow. So... It either is better or it isn't right. in ways that people value, mm-hmm. and to the extent that it is better in ways that people value, it will be adopted. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it won't be.
0: I'd love to someday talk to you about you know, how do you steel man versus straw man, different approaches, but in the limits in the interest of time, I want to ask you my patented three rapid-fire questions all related.
1: Really fast, I want to give you an answer to that because it's oh, yeah. actually really okay. important. Yeah, yeah. So you have to hunger to know why and where you're wrong and the only way that people will hunger to know why and where they're wrong is if they care more about their goal than being right and if they build their self-esteem around finding the right answer rather than being right. right, if you do that, oh my God, then the world suddenly opens to you. So mm-hmm. I am desperate, even though it still hurts. It's embarrassing when I'm wrong and yeah, I've said something and somebody's like, that's actually not true. I'm like, right. oh God. But now I'm like, cool, give it to me. It hurts. It stings. But now I can actually do something.
0: Like you said before, it's like all growth is, you know, involves some pain or whatever, right? And, and one way or another. yeah.
1: And here's the phrase I want to like on my This is going to be,
0: well, let me fold this in. So Arthur C. Clarke, 2001 Space Odyssey, there are these monoliths that are floating around. They're like time capsules that are going to last a billion years. What do you put on your billion-year-lasting time capsule? You ready? Yep, lay it on me.
1: Skills have utility. I just want people to understand, you learn something because it lets you do something. Mm -hmm. And so if you protect your ego Mm -hmm. and you never learn, then you can't do anything. And so your entire life becomes about managing your neurochemistry. And you never get to do anything or experiencing anything. But once you're like, I don't value myself for being right. I value myself for identifying the right answer. Mm -hmm. So I'm more than happy to be wrong. In fact, mistakes and failure are the most information-rich data stream on planet Earth. So I'm more than happy to do that. And in doing that and learning those lessons, I can now do things other people can't do. Mm -hmm. And the most fun way to explain that is the most talented athletes on planet Earth were paid millions of dollars to stop Kobe Bryant from putting a ball in a little hoop. <laughs> and despite that, he got so good that he scored 81 points in a single game. Against other pros, yeah. Correct. <laughs> yeah, right. And so it's like, if that doesn't get you excited to go get so good at something that people can't stop you, mm-hmm. like, they actually can't stop you. Mm-hmm. Not like I mean that it is a theoretical thing. I mean, literally, yeah. they can't stop you. Like, that's...
0: Superpower, yeah. Yeah, No, no I call that uh, humble, humble swagger. You know, if you can balance dichotomies of being uh, having appropriate humility but not being cowardly, the Talmud says the easily embarrassed cannot learn. You can't learn if you're easily embarrassed. On the other hand, you can't create greatness unless you have a little bit of of swagger. Second thing. So that came from Arthur C. Clarke, the namesake of my uh, uh, Center for Human Imagination at UCSD that I'm co-director of. The first, uh, the other uh, comment that usually comes into play is uh, he said. Arthur C. Clarke said, "The only way of determining the limits of the possible is to go beyond them into the impossible." Mm-hmm. That's the title of my podcast. I want to ask you, uh, kind of advice to your former self: what aspect of life perplexed you as a 20-year-old, 30-year-old, whatever? Um, that you know, could you give advice to that person to give him the courage to do as you've done, to go into the impossible? What would that advice to your former self be?
1: So the lesson I needed to learn. Is I was really worried that I wasn't smart enough to be successful like that Haunted me in a way that no matter how I try to explain it to people. They won't understand Mm -hmm. I'm talking almost being paralyzed Mm -hmm. with just like did you you ever see the movie Amadeus? Yeah, all right so Solieri was a real-life contemporary Mozart and he laments to God in the movie and he says God Why make me just good enough to recognize that I'll never be as good as Mozart and I was like somebody sees me That's what it's like to be me I feel like I've been made just smart enough to realize I'll never be really smart, like I'll Mm. never be one of the greats. Mm. And that really bothered me. And what I ended up learning, which is encapsulated in a quote, and I need to look back up who said this because it's so good, you can't make a racehorse out of a pig but you can make a really fast pig. <laughs> and so my life is the answer to the question, what does a really fast pig look like? Okay. And so I would have told myself, stop worrying about whether or not you're a racehorse. Just become a fast pig. It's mm-hmm. so much better than where you're at now. Right. Like you, you will die, you'll run out of time long before you run out of potential to realize. Mm-hmm. So stop worrying about whether you're one of the greatest and just get a thousand times
0: better. All right. Yeah, there's a famous story in the Talmud that the famous rabbi goes to heaven and says, I never became like Moses. And God's like, well, Moses didn't get into the promised land, and so you're not getting into your own promised land either. But I didn't want you to be the next Moses. I wanted you to be the best Rabbi Zusha. That was his name. Well, Tom Bilyeu, it's been an honor uh, getting to interview you. You've uh, influenced my life personally, physically, mentally, and I know millions around the world. I just want to thank you for your awesome mission that you've been on. May it continue, as we say, to 120. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me, man. This was so
1: fun. (laughs) Dude, that was was one of the most fun interviews I've ever done in my life.
0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
1: Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's D-R, Brian Keating, and join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.